there and welcome to the Secrets of Organ Playing podcast. I'm your host, Vidas Pinkavichus. Welcome to Secrets of Organ Playing podcast number 84. This is Sunday, March 5th, 2017. And today's guest is an American composer, concert organist, writer, editor and consultant, Carson Kuman, uh, with a catalog of hundreds of works in many forms, from solo instrumental pieces to operas and from orchestral works to hymn tunes. Since 2006, Kuman has held the position of composer in residence at the Memorial Church, Harvard University, and from 2008 until 11, he also served uh, as composer in residence to the Cathedral Church of St. Paul in Boston, Massachusetts. Since 2015, he has been organ editor for Lawrence Publishing Company. Carson's music has been performed on all six inhabited continents in venues that range from stage of Carnegie Hall to the basket of a hot air balloon. Kuman's music appears on over 40 recordings, including more than 20 complete CDs on the Naxos, Albany, Artec, Gothic, Divine Art, Metier, Diversions, Convivium, Alterus, MSR Classics, Raven, and Zimbel labels. Kuman's primary composition studies were with Bernard Ranz, Judith Ware, Alan Fletcher, and James Willey. As an active concert organist, Kuman specializes in the performance of contemporary music. Over 150 new compositions by more than 100 international composers have been written for him, and his organ performances can be heard on a number of CD recordings. Kuman is also a writer on musical subjects, producing articles and reviews frequently for a number of international publications. He serves as an active consultant on music business matters to composers and performing organizations, specializing particularly in the area of composer estates and archives. In this conversation, Carson shares his insights about his love of contemporary music, about his organ compositions, about this process uh, of composing new music, about his initiative to create new works for chamber organs, and many other things. This is a particularly inspiring talk. Let's go to the show. So, Carson, thank you so much for... uh joining in this conversation uh, I was uh, following your work online and so delighted that you are actually composing new music constantly, uh, performing new music constantly and your YouTube channel looks uh, basically terrific uh, and uh, actually not terrific terrifying, (laughs) terrifyingly uh, uh, majestic you know over 900 compositions right over there uh, i found it's 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 gigantic how do you uh, how do you can you uh, record all of this it's basically thank you so much for your generosity and welcome oh. to the show thank you it's wonderful to wonderful to be here <laughs> wonderful uh, i i i first was introduced carson to your work actually by one of my uh, subscribers um Howard Ward, who recommended uh, you as a performer of uh, 
contemporary organ music, uh, and uh, he was very interested also into uh, Carlotta Ferrari's uh, compositions. And I know oh, sure. you have recorded and performed quite a bit, right? So I have, I have, uh, yes. Let's thank for uh, for our introduction. To, uh, our common friend now, uh, Howard Ward. H Howard, yes, if you're listening, yes. thanks so much for uh, introducing us. It's it's very wonderful to meet new people online like this. So if anybody is listening uh, right now and has an idea about if if you know if if they could introduce two people who could work together uh, might be a good fit it's a very powerful idea like uh, like uh, i i reach out to to carlota and to carson and we we've been connected and uh, many people can do that the same with other organists and composers and uh, organ builders uh, you name it right it's very oh, powerful oh absolutely absolutely yeah excellent so carson uh, I know you are very much into contemporary music, right? You even created yes. your own your own composing system, uh, right? Which you can even describe a little bit later. So, um, what got you interested into organ and composition? Do you remember the first uh, story how you fell in love with the organ? I heard the organ first in church uh, when I was quite young. And I had I uh, was studying I had taken piano lessons, um, but was certainly attracted to the organ, and um, at some point, uh, sort of switched my switched my focus over to learning and playing the organ as an instrument. I've been composing since about age ten. I I I think of myself as a composer first, an organist second. Um, um, but the organ is certainly a very important part of my life. Mm -hmm. I do love it as an instrument and. Um, but on another level, it is the organ is very much for me a means to an end, and the end is performing and engaging with the contemporary music that I love. And if I were a flutist or a clarinetist, I'd be doing basically exactly the same things I'm doing now, just with a different instrument. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm not I'm not one of those organists that it's just about the organ itself for its own sake. That that doesn't interest me as much because for me it's all about uh, it's all about the repertoire, the, the music itself. And in my case, it's contemporary music by many many living and recently living composers from all over the world. It's so powerful, uh, Carson, um, actually to. To, to create a living living legacy, right? You are a living composer, and I'm talking to you, right? Uh, I do compose also a little bit uh, today, and uh, and I, I can I can relate very much. And people around the world also not only are listening who are organists, but some sometimes people really create, and some of them are uh, composers. So. I very much respect organists who, or even musicians in general, who are actually creating, not only performing, but somehow felt this calling to to create, to to uh, to leave something behind, other than you know perform other people's work. So uh, I'm very glad you you heard this calling for yourself. Thanks. So so Carson, um, how did you actually? Become become interested uh, in into create creating or composing. Uh, who who had the, uh, the first idea? Did you were you always composing like Mozart from early ages or later on? What happened first? Um, it was fairly early. I, I like I think a lot of composers, you sort of start by by making things up and then at some point thinking about 
formalizing those in some ways, writing them down. And, and, um, at some point it became clear to me that composition was something that appealed to me in a, in a sort of structured and, and serious way. And so I, I did and continue to pursue that as my primary endeavor. Mm -hmm. Um, And because I think it's because of that, that I was so, and remained so interested in contemporary music in general by other composers, because it's, it's, um, it's all related to the sort of sounds and interests and, and, uh, kinds of styles and things that people are working in today. And that interests me in my own work and it interests me in the work I, I deal with from other composers as well. Mm-hmm. How did, how would you describe your, your, uh, original style? Of course, it's, it has to be original, right? Because you, you came up with the system itself the, with the modal system. Can you describe a little bit and, uh, Oh, that, well, that's, yeah, that's sort of, that's sort of a tangent in a sense. It, it, that has does not have a great deal to do with my own work mm-hmm. per se it's really more to do with um i let's see if i can be clearer um i i don't use that system really very much in my own work i haven't used it as much and it really came up in the context of the work i was doing with uh, carlotta ferrari mm-hmm. that um about 10 years ago i developed the the uh, the restarting pitch space modal system mm-hmm. and um it was in the course of this, these many new pieces that I was working on with her that I decided that it was a good opportunity to uh, to see if she was interested in working with this further, which mm-hmm. she was. Um, so, so that's mm-hmm. it's sort of my one foray into that area. I'm 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 a composer first. I'm not I'm not a theorist. I prefer doing to talking about doing, mm-hmm. and so um, and so. Thus, the the restarting pitch space system it doesn't it doesn't really define the core of my own musical personality, but it has been a sort of interesting endeavor these last few years, particularly in all the work I've been doing with uh, Carlotta, who's been especially interested in it. Mm-hmm. To remind our listeners, uh, uh, what restarting pitch uh, um, space means is that you create like a, like a like a mode or a scale, right? Let's say from C. Yeah, it's then... a system that develops. Uh, it, it 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 sort of it develops a a mode by taking fragments of another scale and transposing them across the space. And the the sort of the most important property of it deals with the fixing of pitches in their in their particular register. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what you what you basically done is created a sort of super mode across the entire range of notes of the musical instrument in question and then that that's the material for the composition there's there's a there's a there's information online that explains it a bit more clearly than what's happening but at the end of the day it's it's about the music that's results like Mm -hmm. any system and it's whether you you know whether you connect with the music or not um and certainly i i have i have i developed this idea originally and and have made some use of it myself but certainly carlotta has really taken to it in a in a very deep way mm-hmm. and um has written many many pieces that sort of really push it to uh, a variety of expressive ends um and so in that case it's sort of it's more it relates more to my collaborative work with other composers in this case her than it does than it does so much to my own music um although we have just we've just she and i have just cr- completed for the first time writing a piece 
together collaboratively going mm-hmm. back and forth um, with different sections, which is something I've never done before with anybody. Composers tend to be very controlling over my own, you know, over our own work. And I am I am no different than that. It's very hard to think about doing something with someone else like that. But she and I have a special uh, artistic relationship, and so uh, we decided we decided to give it a try. So that that's very interest. That's uh, been an interesting endeavor. How did it work? Did you did you uh, compose a few bars uh, each and then submit? We did each sections. Other? Yeah, sections. we did sections. We did it sort of in the like the exquisite corpse model, where you you go back and forth, and you just mm-hmm. you only see the a little bit of what the other person has done, and then at the end you put it all together. Mm-hmm. Um, so just just the last couple days, in fact, we just sort of finished putting it together so now i need to now i need to learn it and play it and then we'll uh, we'll see if we like it <laughs> did uh, did the final result surprise you from from what you um, thought about first i think not hugely because we she and i know each other musically so well at this mm-hmm. point i think we both um i think we both know sort of what the other is going to do in some ways so in that sense it wasn't We wanted to make something that wasn't um, wasn't just a gimmick. We wanted mm-hmm. to try and make something that was a, a piece together. So it was it was an interesting thing. As I said, most of the time, you know, we composers are just off on our own, doing our own creating all alone, and not not you know not showing anything to anyone until it's done. So it was it it's it's fun to push oneself outside of one's comfort zone a bit and try something that's a little different. So so um, we did that. And uh, Carson, of course, you are composing not only for the organ but you are let's say a real composer right you are yeah. you composing I, for a uh, wide variety of instruments it's true you compose operas right symphonies yes. Uh, yes. and uh, oratorios yes, that, right right and mm-hmm. i mean that's one of the reasons why i i say that i do think of myself firstly mm-hmm. as a composer mm-hmm. and second as an organist because for me composing i though i certainly do compose a lot of music for the organ the composing is not because of the organ it's sort of it's something i do regardless mm-hmm. um and and um i enjoy writing for the organ and i have there are many wonderful organist colleagues in the world who play and continue to play my music for which i'm very grateful but i i get a great deal of enjoyment from the projects for other instruments and combinations mm-hmm. as well certainly what was the first piece you created do you remember It was a piece for uh, it was a piece for cello actually. Um, not for was, the organ. I, mm-hmm. It was not for the organ. It was during a it was during a, a couple of just a couple years where I was also studying the cello um, mm-hmm. when I was when I was very young, um, and so it's just it was just a it was just a, a vicissitude of timing um, at that point mm-hmm. that I happened to be doing that and so and and particularly when you're beginning uh, you know the cello being a sort of one line instrument is is a simpler notation exercise mm-hmm. than um, than a keyboard instrument so. Right, and of course uh, now you're composing a- any f- any type of uh, any genre, right? Any setting. So yeah, yeah, many many genres. Many genres. Yep. Uh, do do you have a do you keep um, opus numbers uh, to keep yes, track of the? I do. How many of them? I do. Are? Um, a hundred and I don't know. Sorry, one thousand a hundred and eighty some odd at the moment. Yeah. No kidding! Wow, you're very yeah. prolific. It's okay. It's just a cataloging system. Mm-hmm. You know, when you have a lot of pieces. You need some way to keep track of them all, so exactly. that, I need a database and all the all the things that go with that. So that's why I give every piece a number. I think it's better to do this while composer is living than uh, you yes, know a, f- a few that's centuries true. after that, <laughs> because it would yes, be very difficult <laughs> for for the fans of that composer to go back <laughs> and uh, research all the material. Uh, but uh, you're of course very organized about that and uh, making uh, things simpler for future <laughs> generations, right? 
Sure, sure. Mm. It's mostly so I don't lose track of it myself. You know, <laughs> who, who knows about the future? But, but uh, at the very least, I I need to be able to find things. <laughs> the only way I can do that is if I have some way of cataloging them. Um, <laughs> how long does it take for you to create, let's say, a piece? Um, of let's say uh, do you have a routine or or a uh, structure or a timeline how does it work w- what your uh, normal composition process looks today can you it, share a secret sure sure i mean it 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 varies to some degree mm-hmm. some pieces come together pretty quickly and others take a long time but generally i spend a lot of time thinking about the piece mentally before i before i write anything down um And my projects are usually, my composing projects are usually planned out very far in advance. Mm -hmm. Um, So I know what I need to do for the next couple years, for example. And so right now, even though I'm not actually writing something that I might need to do next year, there's some part of my mind that's Mm -hmm. turning that around. And so in general, I find if I do enough, if I have enough preparatory time, then when it comes time to sit down and do the actual writing out of the piece, it goes pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, But you never know. You never know. And it doesn't seem to have any impact on the resulting piece. Sometimes, you know, I something that you've agonized over forever and ever sort of is fine and disappears without a trace. Something that came together in a day becomes very popular. So it, you, you never have any idea. Mm-hmm. You just have to, you know, do do the best you can to make each piece as good as you can make it. Do you use computer software or you're happy with pencil and pen? Uh, um, I do, I, yeah, I do both. I, mm-hmm. I prefer to do the initial copy with with the with the pen and paper, mm-hmm. and then it goes into the computer. I mean, everything goes into the computer these days. Mm-hmm. But um, I prefer not to start with the computer. Um, I, I have on occasion when time is really short, um, but I prefer not to. The the mm-hmm. pen and paper. The computer tries to make you think the way it thinks, and it's mm-hmm. nice with the pen and paper. It's just completely blank. You don't have to worry about how things look or where the bar lines go or any of that. The computer is always wanting you, you know, what what is the meter? What is it? You have to put in all those things. And it, I think it, it, it can often be a real hamper to the creativity because exactly. you just do what the, you do what the computer thinks is easiest. But mm-hmm. but no question the computer is an amazing tool for producing the final scores. You know, none of that way you don't have to suffer through anyone's handwriting anymore. And um, certainly when it comes to things like orchestra pieces in, in the amount of time that it takes to make orchestra parts is so reduced or piano reductions, you know, for an oratorio or something. So so the computer is wonderful, but I I, I at least still prefer to have most of the creative process happen on paper. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you like uh, to, pl- to play on the keyboard, electronic keyboard? I- I, I do not usually know. No, I pretty much compose at a desk without mm-hmm. without the keyboard. So um, you hear the notes inside, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I find sometimes when you when you work at the keyboard, you end up really writing keyboard music, and many of the pieces are not keyboard pieces. So I, mm-hmm. I, I feel I feel sometimes it it traps you into things that work well under the keyboard or work well under your hands, but mm-hmm. aren't necessarily the right choices for the piece in question. If it's a choral piece or a exactly. chamber piece or an yeah. orchestra piece. I mean, when it is keyboard music, I always spend some time, after I've written it out, I spend some time playing it at the keyboard, you know, mm-hmm. to make revisions and edits, make sure everything fits comfortably under the hands and all of that. But I prefer not to have the initial creative work at the keyboard in general. Mm-hmm. 
there are always exceptions to everything you know not not, a, not one doesn't always do everything exactly the same way but can you compose actually without any keyboard just on the on yes. the table and yes. and every the result will be satisfying to you right yes mm-hmm. so it takes really a amazing amazing uh, inner hearing inner ear perfect pitch or anything you know how did you develop this uh, ability just just by doing by it doing it right by doing it a lot you know and you get you sort of the, the things i can hear best are the kinds of things i do and mm-hmm. you know you, you develop a sort of way of, of doing your own work and sort of the more for me at least the more the more in my earlier years i forced myself to work that way the better i got at being able to hear and produce on paper exactly what it is that I'm hearing in my head. You know, many many people couldn't even uh, reproduce a simple hymn or let's say happy birthday on paper, you know, without a, sure. any singing. But uh, what we are talking about is a very deep and uh, um, advanced uh, level of hearing, you know, right? Uh, sure. I, I yeah, I think, you know, I mean I think everyone just everyone works differently and there are there are many, I mean there have been many there are and there have been many amazing composers who work with the piano mm-hmm. and you know people like Ravel and Stravinsky never Aaron Copland they never wrote anything without working at the piano they never worked at it. they they were completely tied to the piano but I mean that that's some of the greatest music of its time so it's mm-hmm. not you know it's not like there was anything less about about doing that everyone just has to find their own their own particular working way and so for me the way I work whether it's on paper first and the fact that I don't use the computer until the end or the fact that I prefer not to use the keyboard those are just those are my personal choices they over time they are the it's the way that I work that comes to be best for me but I I certainly don't um, intend to say that I think that's the way everyone needs to work or needs to work in order to produce good music so that that's the only thing i worry about when thinking about the notion of hearing on paper something as as having an advanced thing because many advanced and wonderful people have done excellent work with the piano too so you know i i'm a big advocate for creating either on paper or on the instrument spontaneously like improvisation um mm-hmm. and uh, when i talk to people specifically to organists in this case uh, many people are shy and uh, and feel this um, you know uh, sense of um, uh, low self esteem is sort of a little bit and say oh no, i'm not talented I, I, let's leave it to the composers this creativity right yeah. How would you re- react to this remark? Well, I think it depends. I mean, I think there is there is value in there's value to some degree in everyone having the having some creative experience and being able to do that. On the other hand, I am also someone that believes in the value of specialization and and focus and skilled training. And so, in that sense, there is a ton of music in the world already, and there's a lot of people writing it. There's a lot more of it than than there actually is. It's getting played. And so, in that sense. I, I sort of see both sides of it mm-hmm. because I think as an exercise there is there is certainly valid and valid um, things that can be gained from encouraging one's own creativity even if one doesn't say primarily think of themselves as the composer mm-hmm. but of course on the other hand as someone who sees and has trained and considers himself a professional composer I, I take what I do very seriously and so I, the notion of just sort of dipping in and out at times um, you know, in the same way that like a, a doctor takes the work they do seriously. It's not you're not a surgeon. You're not a surgeon who just does it a little bit here and then and then goes and does other things like, no, mm-hmm. you take it. It's your thing and you've trained to do it and you do it very seriously. And so so I, I, I see the 
you know, I see the importance of that kind of preparation and, and realization as well. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned doctor, surgeon, right? If a person wants to become a professional doctor, he has to go to the medical school, get mm-hmm. training for many, many years, right? Composers mm-hmm. also need to go to, to composition school and study with... Yes. with um, certified professors at, uh, yes and you mm-hmm. did right but um, yes. there are some people who are create um, um, and learn the ropes by doing it right there uh, are there absolutely are mm-hmm. yeah and and there are different there are certainly different people that are that come into things through different mm-hmm. ways that's why I said I sort of I feel like it's it's not a cut or dried thing I can't mm-hmm. say it should always be this way and that the only way you can do it is this way. But on the other hand, I, I also feel like it shouldn't always be the other way because there's a lot of people there's a lot of people whose work would be much better if they were either trained or had taken the time to gain more self-training mm-hmm, mm-hmm. rather than just sort of self-indulgently sort of spewing something out. So um, I think I think both both things are both things are relevant. Both mm-hmm. the sort of discipline that that study and training can provide, but of course at some level what the training is doing for a composer is shaping an inherent creativity that's already there. Mm-hmm. I think it would be it's very hard, you know, it's very hard to make a composer out of someone that doesn't already have some degree of interest and drive to do it. Mm-hmm. You have to have that. And what the formal study is about is about honing and refining that innate drive into mm-hmm. into producing work that is that is solid technically mm-hmm. and when you remember your first piece for the cello right was it mm-hmm. at the level you would you would write today for the cello let's say no no mm-hmm. no certainly not no mm-hmm. i mean i think very few people very few people write works at their very beginning that are of the level of what they would write later mm-hmm. even people even people like mozart you know people talk about mozart beginning at an early age and he certainly did but a lot of those early pieces are terrible mm-hmm. really by by the sta- particularly when you think of the standards of what he was able to produce in his maturity before his life was cut short so mm-hmm. i think you know i think everyone does a certain kind of work at the beginning and that's that's important because you have to you have to do what you're doing at the level you can at that point but then it's by by through both training and through greater experience one becomes um one becomes better at mm-hmm. doing what one's doing and i would hope um that that continues until you know until one is dead you know i hope that that every piece gains something from the one that came before it and is and it continues to um refine and improve and be be better at achieving the goals that one has for oneself there is an interesting uh, theory one Ten uh, thousand hours. You might have heard, right? The famous. Oh yes, right. That's right. Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah. I think it was. Was it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which is actually uh, today a little bit uh, disputed in some circles. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. I saw. Yeah. As mm-hmm. with most of the things that he and others do, what you know, they say one thing and then all the everyone comes in to challenge it, yeah. and then they fight back. And the truth is, the truth is probably some mix of it. You know. Yeah. I mean, again, I think. I think. I, I think it's hard to say one size fits all because mm-hmm. some people some people are very quick learners, mm-hmm. some people are very intuitive, some people um, 
some people end up producing really wonderful things, but it takes a tremendous amount for them to get there. They have to spend a lot of time learning, a lot of time refining, and it doesn't come easily to them mm -hmm. at all. Other people, certain things come very easily. And I don't think, I think it'd be hard, it's hard to come up with an overarching theory that accounts for all those differences mm -hmm. because every person is inherently a different person. Mm -hmm. And you know what I've heard just recently? Not 10,000 hours is important, but 1,000 hours is important mm. because uh, uh, how you divide those 1000 you learn the craft in 500 hours you know mm -hmm. just basics basic uh, ba at the basic level uh, the groundwork right and you you basically learn the the uh, another field completely perhaps unrelated field another 500 hours and you combine those fields and mm. become unique mm -hmm. at the intersection of those fields that's mm -hmm. another mm -hmm. theory sometimes people use today mm, because uh, uh, today uh, naturally people juggle many things you know oh, in sure, instead sure. Of, of being interested in just one craft sure mm -hmm. so uh, Carson I'm very curious to know uh, what what would you recommend uh, our listeners uh, to listen first as an introduction to your work uh, to your style to your legacy sure well in terms of in terms of my own organ compositions you mean sure yes that would sure. be a good start I mean there are no, um, a colleague of mine uh, Eric Simmons has been uh, recording um, many uh, of my organ compositions um, it's not officially a sort of complete organ works project but it's sort of turning into that mm -hmm. um, and he has released a number of CDs on the Divine Art label that are readily available um, and those are those are really excellent they're performances that I um, um, sort of supervised and and think he just did a tremendous job um, with my work mm -hmm. and I think across those across those uh, recordings you certainly hear a variety of the different things I do the organ symphony you mentioned is in there and some Preludes and Fugues, and, and some. Um, there's a recent two disc set called Preludio that's entirely um, pieces in a modern style that are very connected to mm -hmm. Renaissance and early Baroque music. Um, so across all of those, there's certainly a fairly wide variety of the different things that I do for the for the organ at least. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And other style, other instruments. Uh, what would be the great good representation of your work, or or other genres, let's say. Other genres, there are several CDs on Naxos mm -hmm. of uh, my orchestra music. Mm -hmm. um, there are a couple excellent CDs of choral music, one on Naxos, um, one on Gothic called The Welcome News, um, one on Convivium called The Evening Choir. Those are all excellent. There's a, there's, my website has a fairly, you know, has a list of them. Again, I have a lot of pieces and there are a lot of recordings of them. So it, it, you know, it, it can, I think, feel a little overwhelming to, to delve into it. But I, you know, I, I'm certainly grateful for anyone who's interested in any part of it. You mm -hmm. know, one doesn't need to listen to listen to absolutely everything. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, Car Carson, uh, y you probably consider yourself as a professional composer, right, today? Who can, I, yeah, who, yeah, I would say so. Who, who does compose for the living, right? Um, uh, and um, at which point of your life uh, did you discover the need f to be a professional composer instead of, of uh, composing on the side? Or did you always wanted to compose? I think from the time... By, when I was in high school, um, before going to college, before going to university, I 
it was at that point that I really decided for myself that composing would be my primary thing. And mm-hmm. and certainly from that point, it was clear that this would be the main thing and that I and that, you know, pursuing this in a professional way was what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. There was there was no question of there was no question of doing something else and, and doing it on the side mm-hmm. that that works fine for many people. Um, um, you know, there's been a number of people that have done that and, and do good work. But that that was not that was not what I wanted to do. I, I really wanted to be immersed in in the musical world entirely. Mm-hmm. as much as possible. Do you have uh, your uh, your muses, your mentors uh, which who inspire you today? I'm it's very hard to name people because there are so many people mm-hmm. that I work with and I hate to I hate to single out composers just because I work with so many and composers get very territorial and jealous when you mention one person's name then you get a you know you record one person's piece and then you immediately get a message from someone else saying why didn't you record my piece? So You know, it's 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 a little annoying, but it is it is it's the it's, way. It's even strange you receive those messages, right? Uh, it's yeah, it's I you know I don't mean to complain, but it is it is mm-hmm. it is funny. But there there is the sense among some composers that if you're giving one person attention, you're depriving them of attention. But uh, we can composers we composers can be a very selfish bunch, clearly. Anyway, but what really inspires me is working with working with so many living composers who are writing wonderful music in very personal ways and i i've always been most attracted to composers who um whose work has a really defined personality and i will name three people because the three the three composers whose music i've played the most of in the last few years are carlotta ferrari who we mentioned who's italian and lothar grapp who is german and um Thomas Oberg, who is mm-hmm. Swedish, mm-hmm. Um, and the three of them, I've recorded multiple recordings of their music, quite several CD releases, and then many, many more things online on YouTube. And they've they've been three of many composers that I've I've really specialized in. And the one thing, the one there, the three of them write in very different styles, but the one thing that unify that unifies them is that each one of them has a very, very strong personality mm-hmm. that comes through in their work. And in the case of those three, also a real sense of national identity. Tomas's music is extremely Swedish, and uh, Lothar Grapp's music is extremely German, and Carlotta's music, I think, in in, in many cases, is is very Italian, and so um, I also find that I find that very interesting. Thomas Oberg's uh, work, I might have heard even in Vilnius. I, I have to remember here in Lithuania. It's possible. It's possible. His music has been played. His music mm-hmm. has been played a lot, and he used to tour himself quite a bit as an mm-hmm. organist. I think. Uh, James D. Hicks might have played oh, yes, him, yes. Uh, through Indeed. his uh, Nordic Journey series. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. yes. No, Jim. Jim does does know Thomas as well, and has included a few mm-hmm. of his pieces as part of that uh, amazing, amazing mammoth endeavor that Jim has been doing for uh, for Scandinavian music. But yes, yeah. um, but yes, T- Thomas is a wonderful composer. His music is extremely Swedish. It's extremely personal and. Um, It's it's um it's a delight to play to play and hear and um and it's I continued I continue to enjoy programming it even after a number of years now. Mm-hmm. And how do you how do you find those composers? How do you discover them, or they discover I'm you? So, I'm sort of well. Sometimes it's that particular. Mm-hmm. Certainly, there is more of that these days. That people you know a lot of people do send me things, but I am constantly constantly seeking things out i'm listening to things i'm listening to what other people are playing i'm i'm ordering new scores constantly i'm looking at whatever the new pub is newly published or not 
And I, I go through voluminous, voluminous quantities of music every year, piles and piles and piles of it. And that's a small fraction of that is, is what grabs me and are the pieces that I really want to play or the composers whose work suddenly speaks to me in a deep way and I decide to really go in depth um, with. So it's, it's, it's an ever-growing thing. And it's, it's so, to me, it, the sense that there's always more of it and that there's always people that are there to still be discovered and people still writing and new things is just continually exciting. It's just a sort of exhilarating feeling to, for me to constantly be able to know that there's more ahead. And you also uh, are a music editor, right? You edit moving, I do, yeah. new submissions, I do. right? Yeah, I direct the publications in the Oregon area and some of the choral area for uh, the Lorenz Corporation and Sacred Music Press, uh, uh, one of the large music publishers mm -hmm. here in the USA. And, and that work is very connected as well. It's, mm -hmm. again, about developing, uh, new developing projects with new composers, seeking out music, bringing about new works for the instrument uh, mm -hmm. for the market. So, so, yes, I am also involved in that. It's sort of like book publishing in a way, right? Only mm -hmm, for music. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It is. It is. Mm -hmm. It's you know. It's it's um, it's. I I enjoy it very much. It's a tremendous company to work for. They have been so supportive of me and my sort of wide ranging interests when it comes to the organ and contemporary music. And um, I'm very grateful to have to have them sort of behind me, supporting these um, these publications and the new projects that I'm seeking out and developing with with all sorts of composers and the goal that is the goal is that we publish organ and some choral music that is um useful and appealing and fresh to a whole lot of organists mm -hmm. um especially in the u.s where where our large market is but um also also in other places around the world mm -hmm. there's certainly been increasing interest the internet has certainly the, been the great leveler in availability and now you know i I'm constantly ordering music from publishers in Europe that, that don't have distributors in the USA, and I know vice versa. Some, you know, there are European musicians, musicians in other countries that are ordering music from our American publishers. So it's, it's been good as well. We've also then been able to publish some music by composers that aren't American, but, but sort of introducing some of their work to the American market, which I think is also wonderful and just um, is another opportunity for some fresh, mm -hmm. fresh perspectives and uh, to put some new music in front of people by, by names that might be new to them. You don't feel that uh, interest uh, for the new contemporary music is diminishing, probably? I not? don't think so. I don't think so. I think it's certainly in, in the last however many decades, it's, al it's, it's, it's always been a somewhat small, it's a sub, sort of sub part of a mm -hmm, sub part. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I mean, you figure music is one category in the world and music is a small category out of all the things in the world and then classical music concert music within that is a small category and then within that is is you know contemporary music and then within that is contemporary organ music so we have our little you know at the end we just work our way down to our little our little you know our little area in which mm -hmm. we work and that's that's fine i'm totally okay with that there are wonderful people who seem to enjoy the music that I write and the music that I play by other people and the music that we publish. And um, so as long as, there are, as long as there are people that are still interested in it, I intend to continue doing it. Mm -hmm. And look, to, look at yourself. You are deeply committed. You are uh, very enthusiastic about that. So are probably other people around the world who are specializing in, in contemporary music. Uh, maybe there are not too many of them, but they are 
deep into it, right? Very. Uh, yes, they yes. buy everything that is published. They mm -hmm. play everything, mm -hmm. right? They recommend yep. everything, and you are friends with many, many people like that, right? So no, sure, it's sure. a big one, small community, let's say, in a it big is, world. It is. Mm -hmm. It is. You know, and I, I, yeah, I, you know, what we're doing, what we're doing in say contemporary music and contemporary organ music may not be, it may not interest everybody in the larger world and larger society but i i still i still feel a calling to do it and i feel that um there are there are enough people out there who are inspired and engaged as mm -hmm. well mm -hmm. and uh, of course uh, majority of organists uh, would uh, probably uh, be happy staying with bach buxtecude de frank and vern for the most part but, sure but uh, sure they don't know what they're missing actually yeah yeah actually i think that some of it I've, i've actually i've actually found in some ways organists are more open to some degree of new music than many other instrumentalists are you know oh, really? for example For example, pianists, um, you know, or violinists in general tend to be very, very unaware of contemporary music or they're a specialist and they do nothing but that. There's very little middle ground. I've actually found, and this is not scientifically studied, obviously, just this just personally, anecdotally, my own experience, that I found there are more organists who are willing to include some contemporary music. And that's that's fine. I mean, I, I am an exclusively... I'm a performer who does exclusively contemporary music. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm interested in. But I, I would never seek to impose that on anyone else. N not everyone else has to do only that one thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so the fact that they find a few pieces that they like and play them or a few composers, that, that's wonderful. And that's totally fine. Um, and I actually, I actually have found that I think um, there's a greater openness among organists than there are in some other instruments. So it's it's not as bad as I think it could be. Particularly, you know, if you go to a conservatory and you speak to concert pianists, who many of whom couldn't name a living composer. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right, the organists are more curious, probably. Uh, I think so, and I think I think it's also because organists have to. Organists in general, almost every organist has some connection or work in the church. Mm -hmm. And that means you play a lot of music because you have services at least every week, often more, mm -hmm. often additional things. That means you're playing a lot of music. You're playing a lot of music. That's not the same thing as being a, a solo piano recitalist where you tour around and play the same program over and over again. You have a couple concerti that you play with, you know. It's yeah. like you're you're at the same church week after week, and you have to give them new. You have to get. You can't just play the same piece every single week. Mm -hmm. So I think I think from that for that reason, and because many organists are also church choir directors, and I think because of that, there's just you know the the Sundays keep coming, the Sundays yes. keep coming, and the people keep coming and keep filling the pews, and and we have to give them material. So mm -hmm. I think from that there is a there is an innate curiosity that that is uh, that people in this in this field have because. You have to keep finding new stuff to do. Mm -hmm, you know, exactly. whether it's whether it's contemporary music or just new to you, older music that's less well known or whatnot. You know, mm -hmm. you can't you can't you can't sing the same piece every Sunday or play the same prelude every week. So, mm -hmm. organists are very blessed in a way because they have this inherent situation for public performance every week. Yes, right? mm -hmm. yes, th yes. That that is also really very special um, for organists. To, the chance to the cha have a chance to try out so much music, mm -hmm. and again, not just contemporary music, but music music in general mm -hmm. the fact that you do have this opportunity for public performance every week and one wants to one always wants to be putting forth one's best which i would hope for for this but it's also um 
it's also not always as stressful of a situation as, say, performing a major recital at a, you know, at a national organist convention or something like that, where the stakes are very high. And, you know, it's the, the, what one, one can, one can be sometimes can try things in church in a different way. You know, you try that piece for the prelude or you try it sort of along the way as you're learning it. You say, you know, my interpretation of this is not totally honed yet, but I'm going to play it this week and see how it goes and then take take something from that experience towards continuing to practice it and refine it for performance. And that, to be able to do that in public, like organists mm-hmm. can in church, is a, is a, is a real gift. Because um, otherwise you're just sitting in a practice room somewhere or sitting in your living room, you know, playing at your walls. Exactly, exactly. And Carson, how does your audience react to, to a constant flow of new music during your recitals? It's been very positive. I mean, nobody is surprised per se. I've, I've always done this, and this is what I do. So if someone, if someone asks me to come and play a recital, like they know what they're going to get. Exactly. They know I'm not going to. I'm not going to come and play the Bach and Vidor and things that everyone else is already playing for them. So, so it's not. It's not that. I, I am grateful that that it, often audience members are are do not know that going in. But I I certainly frequently do receive comments that people. People enjoy the experience in a way that they didn't think they would mm-hmm. um, with unfamiliar music. And I think some of that is about – it's also about choosing the pieces one plays and what places. And the kind of – though the program is an all-contemporary program always, the kind of program I would play, say, at a, at a church on a recital series, in a, you know, say in a small church, is different from the kind of program I would play on a concert for the composition department at a university. Exactly. Um, you know, there, there would be some pieces of overlap, but there are some there are some pieces that are more suited for one context than the other. And some mm-hmm. of that is just, you know, it's just being aware. Um, I, I've never been the sort of organist that has basically a few programs and just plays the same programs everywhere, no matter what the organ is. The programs I do are very much the pieces are very much chosen to both the organ and the context at hand. Um, mm-hmm. And so I feel that by taking that effort, I think it, it helps already make the, you know, it presents what I hope is putting the contemporary music out there with its best foot forward mm-hmm. and, and showing it off in the, in the best light possible rather mm-hmm. than just sort of saying, okay, here's the music, just play it, throw it. And I try and do other things. I, I always, I always prepare program notes for the concerts. Yeah. Always. I feel that's very important so that they can read something about these composers. You know, they might know a little bit about the life of, say, Beethoven, but they wouldn't, you know, they might not know anything about the life of Carlotta Ferrari. So it's nice to give them a little bit of background. And then also notes that I or the composer have written about the specific piece in question, which I think is also a help. And again, people can either engage with those notes or not um, to whatever extent they want, but at least they're there. Because I think context is important, particularly because in almost all cases of the audience they're hearing pieces that they've never heard before right um, do you like uh, Carson talking between the pieces yourself I do not I do not in general and that's uh-huh. just a personal thing I really don't like talking in recitals I think there's way 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 too much of it these days mm-hmm. I think there's this tendency now with performers to just sort of yeah you know yammer on and on between the pieces so i Uh i admit that's totally a personal taste thing i it drives me crazy to sit and listen to someone talk constantly and so i try and do as little of the talking as possible um there you know people make arguments either way that's that's fine i i for me i i prefer to have the notes because i prefer that people can read them at their own pace during the piece otherwise if i stood up there and just tell them things about the piece they've already forgotten it as they're trying to listen Mm -hmm. um 
So I, I generally speak as little as possible. Um, I usually I take the cue from the host of the concert series. If they if they want me to say something in yeah. one place or two places, something brief, that's fine. That's fine. But I, I do not enjoy this trend of verbal program notes. I think mm-hmm. it distracts from the flow of the music as a concert experience, and I think it's much less it's much less helpful for the audience, in my opinion, than giving them notes. And I think it's also your your the music itself is what needs to communicate with them mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and playing of the music and if you st- have to stand up there and talk about the music like most people don't speak as well as they play mm-hmm, most mm-hmm. concert organists and so it's often a very disappointing experience you know they sort of say some things and then they sit down and they play and it's very good and I would rather just have the playing. Again, you'll find me- there's many there's been many debates in the letters sections of the organ magazines and stuff about this. Some people are like me and can't stand the talking. Other people think it's wonderful. So there's there's not necessarily a right or wrong answer. But you you ask me my opinion. So that that is my personal opinion. But. Carson, how interesting! People who are listening to you right now uh, would think the exact opposite, right? Because you you're such a great storyteller. Uh, right now uh, on the show and uh, I would think that you would like to to talk you know during the performance but probably not no I mean because I feel it's a different you know this is a this is an interview mm-hmm. here right. you know interview conversation we're not we're not dealing in music right now we're talking about music but right. we're not you know but to me the concert the concert is a very special experience the concert recital a very special experience where i've put together a program of mm-hmm. music that i want to share and these are the these are the pieces i want to share these are the sounds the work by the composers that i i can't wait to share with this audience and to me my sitting up there and talking distracts from that they didn't come for a lecture yes they came to, they came to hear these pieces and by giving them the notes i feel i'm giving them the context that they can read and absorb at their own pace exactly. and that and that my my the best thing i can do for the people in the audience and for the composers who have written these pieces that i'm privileged to play is to perform them in as communicative a fashion as possible and yes. that is that is the way of sharing it with the audience not my playing it and then trying to tell them about it in words mm-hmm. because to some degree if we could do it all in words we wouldn't need to write the pieces oh yes exactly that's a great idea so in other words you're saying that uh, if 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 the music doesn't communicate maybe that's the wrong audience or the wrong music right or, or the I wrong think, performer yes. Mm-hmm. I think that's the wrong problem. I, I think it's a fallacy to think that you can make up for that just by talking about it mm-hmm. more. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I, I totally agree with you because there are really different settings, different expectations from the audience, right? People, yeah. some, some people don't like to be distracted, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And I think it depends. I mean, again, it also depends on the context. I have done some programs where I'm sort of that are that are where I'm like particularly for other organists where I'm really sharing the music and those are much more informal. In that case, sure, could talk about it. Mm-hmm. But in terms of a concert presentation, I you know I plan the order of the pieces very carefully. I plan the sequence. I plan the amount of time overall carefully. All of that's part of that. And the more talking there is, the more that balance is upset. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I know uh, Carson that. Uh, you also are very unique in the organ world because you also uh, generate a lot of music for the small chamber organs, right? Yes. Which which is actually totally forgotten instrument uh, as a contemporary medium, right? Yes, that's a big interest. Can you share a little bit uh, what got you interested into composing for chamber organ? 
Um, well, compo- some, yeah, certainly composing, but also I've commissioned and, and encouraged a lot of pieces from other composers right? for the mm-hmm. chamber organ as well. And and for me, it was just seeing something that I think was neglected by a lot of organ mm-hmm. composers. I think the the inheritance of so much contemporary organ composition today is sort of entirely post-French romantic. And it's mm-hmm. just all these big organs and big – it's just everything is big, mm-hmm. big and loud and toccata-ish all the time. And that, that stuff is exciting to be sure. But um, – I think there is real value in the smallest organs as mm-hmm. well. And mm-hmm. I think there's also there's also a trend um, among certain organists to, you know, who are only interested in the biggest the biggest organs, the bigger the better. How many manuals does it have? And, yes. And and again, it's very exciting to sit in a huge cathedral and play a huge five manual organ mm-hmm. with hundreds of stops. That there's no question that's an exciting experience. But I think there's a wonderful intimacy that's possible on um, mm-hmm. smaller instruments, smaller, smaller organs, even the very, small, very smallest organs. And my reason for pushing this area in contemporary music is I feel like historically there's been a lot more music. There's been other periods of time where there has been music that's very suitable for small organs. Certainly in the early era, obviously, mm-hmm. there's many, many pieces that can be played on, on organs of almost any size from the very smallest. And in the early 20th century, particularly, uh, you had the sort of overlap period with the harmonium. And so you had a lot of pieces that could be played on small salon organs and things at home. But then sort of the big French romantic influence sort of crushed out everything else. Mm-hmm. And so now mm-hmm. most new organ music that's being written is the vast majority is for large instruments. So I just I just felt a need to try and push back against that by bringing about some smaller things. And in some cases, we're talking very, very small organs, which I, I love playing. I love, love playing. I love giving recitals on small, mm-hmm. small organs. I, I've even given a recital on an organ that had just a single stop, just single one stop. stop. And single how, stop. how long was the recital? Uh, about an hour. Wow, you you yeah. you had the audience's in, interest right for and focus for an hour. That's yeah, amazing. All, all, all con- and all contemporary. So I, I think it's it, it's totally possible. You just have to you have to choose accordingly. Mm-hmm. You have to choose accordingly and prepare. You know, prepare. And so I think so. Th- this project for me was just is just a bit an effort to bring about. Um, To both bring about new repertoire for this and to play this repertoire on these instruments. Again, because there are certainly organists who play small organs Mm -hmm. wonderfully, but almost all of them are early music people. And they play only early pieces. And that's great, but what I want to say by playing recitals in these instruments and commissioning and performing all these new pieces is that brand new music can also be written very effectively for these Mm -hmm. organs. The the new organ music is not just for the big, big, huge instruments. Mm -hmm. There's also wonderful brand new music for for these little organs and we don't have to only play early pieces on mm-hmm. them it's amazing um, i think the the early music renaissance um in the 20th century has meant that so many of the very smallest organs are really used only for accompanying early music ensembles for playing the continuo parts yeah. you know we have all these these trunk the trunk the box organs through an organ and things like that and and I like the idea of actually playing solo repertoire, particularly mm-hmm. contemporary repertoire on those organs, um, because I feel it's a lost potential. It's a lost potential to only use those to play continual parts in Baroque in Baroque choral music and chamber music. They're great for that, but it's it's a shame not to also have new, wonderful new pieces by exciting living composers written for them. Yeah, and some actually organists are e- actually ashamed of the size of their instrument, right? Yeah, yeah, they mm-hmm. are. I mean, it, it takes a it's, it's a different. You have to be very confident, I think, both in your own 
projection and interpretation of the music and in the music you're playing because you have you don't have the same kinds of registration things that one can hide behind on a larger instrument it's just mm-hmm. a different thing it's a very communicative intimate experience and it's a different kind of piece and you you're not it's not about sort of wowing the audience with big toccata flourishes and and huge chords that shake everything to their seats you know mm-hmm. and so that's when you don't have that at your disposal, you have to think in a different way about the kind of music and what you can what you can do mm-hmm. and communicate communicate with it. And I think it's I think it's it's I believe in having those sort of widest possible experience. And mm-hmm. so one of the reasons I focused on this is because it seemed like everyone was doing something different. Mm-hmm. And so again, the point is just to sort of not to invalidate or criticize what other people are doing but just to to provide something that that really wasn't being provided mm-hmm. and to be able to play just with your 10 fingers right yeah yeah part. 10 fingers or sometimes just a few sometimes just like an octave of pedals or mm-hmm. a pull down pedal or you know very very little very little and there are there are wonderful small instruments all in all sorts of places around the world and and the tendency is just never to think about them as recital instruments mm-hmm. you know we they're, they're there for practice they're there for a rehearsal they're there to practice on it they're there to accompany the choir but the idea of no i'm going to give a solo recital on this and it's not going to be a gimmick i think that's that's an important thing mm-hmm. and, and in the united states we have an organization the organ historical society that has um I think for about 50 or 60 years it's been in existence and has given during its conventions it always it always includes many smaller instruments as well mm-hmm. um and and that you know that is that's a wonderful thing that they that they continue to encourage but i i so encourage places that have these small instruments to use them in a regular way and not think oh well, you know, we can only have a famous guest organist come and play on the big organ on our series. It's like, no, there's all sorts of organists and there's all sorts of organs and there might be other people who would be interested or able to do something different in a different context and to have these wonderful instruments for which there is music, both early and new, mm-hmm. um, to have them just heard on their own and heard, hear the beauty and intimacy that's possible within them. I'm so delighted we we had this conversation, Carson, and you're a real champion and actually leader and vi- visionary for what what it, uh, what will contemporary music will look in 50 years or even 100 years <laughs> probably. Uh, how would you predict the future? Can you predict the future a little bit? I I, I think I no I can't, I really can't predict the future. Unfortunately, you know I'm I'm very optimistic. Um, in one sense, but in the other sense, I think it's it's so hard to have any idea exactly what's coming around the corner. Mm-hmm. Um, um, you know, not but both musically and in certainly other larger larger ways in the world instead. So I, you know, I, I sort of feel all I can do is do the champion the things I believe in and do the best work I can sort of now and hope that I can keep doing that for as long as is possible. But I, I just I. I don't think I can predict, you know, mm-hmm. I can't predict what the world will be like in 50 years. I think there's just there's just too many variables. All right. And what would you be your uh, number one advice for organists who would be interested into either composing or performing contemporary music? Sure. I mean, I think there's I think the the first thing is simply realizing that it is not some monolith and you have mm-hmm. you know you, you sometimes encounter people who are like well i don't like contemporary music it's like to me that's a meaningless statement because the the diversity of music that falls under that label today is huge mm-hmm. from music of in a sort of completely retro baroque style to the furthest avant-garde non-tonal 
an experimental end and literally everything in between. Mm -hmm. And so to just say, I don't like contemporary music is, is idiotic because it, it displays a tremendous ignorance of the incredibly wide range of what's mm -hmm. being written today. We live in a time where there is no common practice anymore. It's different right. from, it's different from the era, the classical era, era, the Baroque era, or even going into the, even into the late 19th, early 20th century, there is no common practice. Everyone is doing something different, and I think that is incredibly exciting because the chance for personal expression is very strong. The chance to connect with whatever part of the tradition one wants to do mm -hmm. is strong. And I think that also means for someone that's interested in playing or hearing contemporary music that there is something for you there. There is something you will like. There is a composer or a group of composers or a group of pieces that you will like um, because there's something in every con different conceivable way regardless of the kind of organ you play or the kind of music you want to play, whether you want to play free, freely composed music, whether you want prefer music based on hymns, whether mm -hmm. you, it's all there. And so um, the, that's, that's, I would say, is the first thing, is simply realizing this enormous umbrella that exists under mm -hmm. which all this music is. And then if you're really seriously committed, seek it, you know, do find, find some, find what you like in it to be able to do it because you will be able to. And certainly there are any number of ways of doing that from publications and many recordings online, things like YouTube and other places online have made it easier than ever to find music. That's what is behind my recording projects on YouTube is a sense of promoting pieces that I think other people will like mm -hmm. and that I hope other people will enjoy playing. That's, that's how I choose what I play there. Um, some of it is, some of it overlaps with my concert repertoire, but it's not necessarily the same thing. I include a lot of pieces that I think are not, um, they wouldn't some of them are not pieces that I program in a concert for one reason or another, but they are pieces that I could be very useful to people for church or for other purposes. And the point is to just try and introduce people to as many names and composers and pieces that they don't know. Fantastic, Carson. You're you're very enthusiastic and absolutely inspiring. Thank you so much. And can, oh, thank uh, you, uh, Carson. Can you direct our listeners to some place online when our uh, listeners could find out more about you? And your work. Sure, sure. Yeah, pretty much everything is on my website, uh, CarsonKuman.com. C-A-R-S-O-N-C-O-O-M-A-N. CarsonKuman.com. And my, my compositions and recordings and all everything is sort of is sort of archived there, and it links. It can link to other places. I do have, as you mentioned, a YouTube channel with many, many. I think over a. 1100 or 1200 now performances of, of contemporary organ works that I've given by, by other composers. Um, over 350 composers, I think, are represented across those pieces. So, but everything is sort of linked and cataloged there. And, and, um, and um, it's a lot of material, but um, hopefully people can find at least something that they like. Yes, variety is the key, right? <laughs> yes, yes. You put it all out there and... and uh, hope that different different things speak to different people in different ways and you mm -hmm. never you never can predict exactly which is the thing that grabs people i you know i sometimes mentally try to think that this is you know this is the one that everyone will like and i i you know sometimes you're right sometimes you're not and sometimes something you didn't even think about is the thing that everyone loves so 
you know, you just you you do, you put the material out in the best way you can, and and hope that it uh, hope that it makes a connection with somebody. Thank you so much, Carson. Keep composing. Oh, thank you, have you have you composed today? Have you have had a chance to practice today? Not yet, probably. I have not. I have not today because it, it's only the early afternoon here right. in the U.S. now, and so that that I will, hope that you will, will come later this afternoon and evening. So. Absolutely amazing. Thank <laughs> you so much. Keep producing. Thank you. Bye bye. Keep bye-bye. keep it up. If you liked this conversation, I encourage you to visit my blog, Secrets of Organ Playing, at organduo.lt, where you will find lots of insights, practical advice, and training for every area of organ playing. You can subscribe to this blog for free to get your daily dose of inspiration and to be the first to know when any of my future podcasts roll out. I hope to help you reach your dreams in organ playing. I'm Vida Spinkavitus. Thanks for listening. And I'll catch you online really soon.